Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 10. Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? That's the chorus singing that. The bride, the wife, Shulamit, she says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set over me, or set me over the chariots of my noble people. The chorus then sings, Come back, come back, O Shulamit, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. And the husband says, Why should you gaze at the Shulamit? as at the dance of the two companies. (laughs) Father, interesting little section here. And we breeze by it pretty quickly Wednesday, Lord, um, because there's so much here. And I pray that you will give us patience and open hearts this morning to receive everything that you have in this part of the song. There's some powerful things that you have spoken by your Spirit into the poet here, into Solomon as he wrote. And coming back out of the mouths of these different characters within the poem. Father, may it be far more than a poem to us. May it be the breath of life spoken by Jesus. And may we know what it is that we are headed to. And may we have a joy inexpressible in our living hope. Holy Spirit, You can accomplish these things this morning. And we just pray that You will speak Your Word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The poet John Keats was born in 1795 and died in 1821. He was just 25 years old. Those of you familiar with John Keats may remember this or know this. His critics in life were absolutely scathing. They said his poetry was, was just not up to par with some of the other great poets of the day. In fact, some believe a final printed criticism led to his death, even though he is said to have died of tuberculosis. But he was so embittered that his last request was to be buried with an unmarked tombstone that simply read, Here lies one whose name was writ in water. Posthumously, He became one of the most famous English romantic poets of the 19th century and and on to this day. And he would never live to see or know the influence of his work. Absolutely remarkable. One of his most famous poems is called Ode to a Grecian Urn. Some of you perhaps studied that in high school. I had to. I didn't get it. In the ode, the the poet is gazing at this beautiful vessel at this vase, and and he's turning it, and he's looking at it, and he's considering the images on the vase as the poem goes on. And it's a fascinating poem, because it speaks for what, what for Keats was the philosophy of his life, what he believed was the greatest thing that he had ever understood or come to. As he's turning this vessel, drawn and carved all around with representations of life and beauty, he realizes the pictures on the vessel are not changing. They're they're set as in stone. They're held fast in the moment. The people on the urn don't change. They don't age. 
They're exactly the same. The spring trees don't shed their green leaves. The green leaves are always green there on the urn. The unheard songs of the musicians on the urn are absolutely sweet. Sweeter, he says, because the musician doesn't run out of breath, never stops singing. Though the song be unheard, the song goes on and continues. And in the final stanza, Keats wrote, When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain. In midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. The philosophy of his life, truth is beauty. Beauty is truth. Now sadly, you and I know things break and things shatter and urns don't last even themselves. Things get lost, things get destroyed, people die. And every tangible thing in this physical world will one day burn away. But Keats was on to something in saying that truth is beauty and beauty is truth. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. I think he makes a point. Because Jesus said in John 8.31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And you realize if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, the truth with Jesus is not a concept. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. And that being the case, truth is beauty. Beauty is truth. Jesus is beautiful. And Jesus is truth. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ is truth and beauty yesterday, today, and forever. And that is all you need to know. The wonder of the Song of Songs, as we have seen over the past few weeks, is the impact of the person of truth on the beauty of a world-weary woman. You begin to realize through the song that this cannot be talking, the husband of, of this song, the bridegroom, cannot be talking about mortal man because the influence he has on the bride is far beyond what influence any man could have on any woman. He changes her. He draws out of her the beauty that is in her and helps her see the truth of who she is in his embrace. When they are together, it's a remarkable poem. She goes from working the vineyard to walking the courts of the king. It's truly the Cinderella story of the Bible. And ultimately, she is even recognized by his name as she is called Shulamit, which you Bible students may recall is the feminine form of the name Solomon. So when she's called Shulamit in the song, suddenly she has now taken his name. She's Mrs. Solomon. In chapter 7, as we saw last week, she leaps into a beautiful dance. Last Wednesday night we talked about this, how she begins to dance before him. The language in the Hebrew is very dynamic, it's very moving. And so she's dancing there and he's describing the dance and he now is enamored with her. He is fascinated by her. He describes her beauty in form and motion. Why is she dancing in chapter 7? Because she finally gets it. The joy in her absolutely overflows as she realizes the single most wonderful, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, beautiful truth of the entire Song of Songs and our lives. And what is that truth? Repeat after me, I am my beloved's. And His desire is for me. A truth that once you get it will make anyone want to dance. A wonderful truth. 
I am my beloved's and His desire is for me. Yes, that's the message. That is what the singer is singing. That is what the poet is writing. That is the message of the Song of Songs. You see, if we are really listening, it's not the voice of Solomon we hear. It's the voice of Jesus calling out to you, calling out to me, His beloved. His church. I was thinking about this, actually I've been thinking about this through the whole song. About what makes a beautiful church. A church is an interesting thing in the world today. An interesting dynamic because often, and I have been guilty of this over the years, often the church is bashed. It's very easy to bash the church. You know, because it's this, it's this kind of thing out there and we can very easily get onto it and be negative about it and be frustrated by it and the things that perhaps that have been done in the name of Jesus by the church in the past that were dastardly you know the problems that the church has had the issues perhaps you have been hurt by someone in church and so we come to this place where we blame the church but you know what Jesus sees when he looks at the church truth and beauty he sees beauty And so I've been thinking, what makes a beautiful church? If you all believed it was architectural design, you would not be here this morning. (laughs) What makes a beautiful church? Is it that the truth is preached? Does that make a church beautiful? Or, Or that worship is shared in a congregation? Is it the vision of a pastor that makes a church beautiful? Or the mission of the congregation? Is it the fact that the people have love and care and hospitality and that when you walk in the door you just feel welcomed? Is that what makes a beautiful church? Now listen, all these things are good. But none of these things make a church beautiful. So what is it? The church is beautiful simply because we are our beloveds. We are beautiful because of Him. The wonder, the truth, and the beauty that is in this place is because we are our beloveds and His desire is for us. And that will make anyone beautiful. I think if we understood that, the church would never disappoint us. I think we would see completely differently because our eyes would be fixed on Jesus rather than on each other. And if we're looking at Jesus and looking at the way He gazes back at us, He makes us beautiful. He makes the church beautiful. So let's begin there this morning. Some things to note. If you want to jot down some notes, the first thing to note is a beautiful church. We hear a description here of a beautiful church. Verse 10. Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? Right out of the gate, the chorus is asking the question as they marvel at the beauty of Shulamit. Shulamit, the bride, the wife, the loved of the king. And they're gazing at her and they're saying, who is this? They ask the same question. You may recall back in chapter 3 where they said, who is this coming up from the wilderness when she rose, rode in that palanquin with Solomon back to Jerusalem? You know, the the wedding procession. They asked, who is? Who's in there? They're looking. They want to see. Who is this? And now they ask again as they see her, as they see her, just having heard her described by the husband, they say, who is this? This this one. They're marveling at her beauty. But the description 
though poetic, it leaps far beyond the portrait of an individual. It's much bigger than any one person can possibly be described as. It vividly portrays the church. Notice there are four word pictures given by the chorus as they ask the question, Who is this that grows like the dawn? That's number one. She grows like the dawn. She grows like the dawn. Lately my my three-year-old David is, is paying attention to the rising and setting of the sun. And every morning when we go in to wake him up or get him out of bed, he wants to see, is the sun out? He wants to go look out the window. And if there's any light at all, he says, the sun's waking up. The sun's waking up. And then in the evening, usually around 4 o'clock or so, because he doesn't want the day to end, he'll run over to the window and say, is it still light? Is it still light, Dad? Yes, it's still light. You still have time to play. And he goes off, you know, very happily. She grows like the dawn. See, what David's figured out and what we all know is that the day grows on us. As the light grows, day is upon us. In the same way, the church grows like the dawn. She's supposed to be getting brighter, cluing in. And as she comes into her own, she is supposed to be seeing herself in light of her beloved. Growing like the dawn. Now, let me just ask you personally, is she growing like the dawn? Are we growing like the dawn? Are we getting brighter? Jesus said when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Luke 18, verse 8. 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah indicated the difference between those who would grow like the dawn and those who would wane like the darkening evening. And we have a choice. We can go either direction. We cannot stand in the middle. But we can either grow like the dawn in brightness, in love, in passion, in relationship with Jesus, or we can wane like the darkening evening, drifting off from Him. Here's the difference. Isaiah said in in chapter 8, verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. You will not clue in, you will not brighten up if you don't speak according to the Word of God. You will have no dawn. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, We have the prophetic Word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The Word. People look at the Bible and I hear all the time, I just don't understand all this. I'm not sure I get all this. Listen, I want to keep your finger there. Go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to stay there actually for just a few minutes. So keep a finger in the song. Go to 2 Corinthians and keep a finger there so you can kind of flip back and forth, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul explains this a little better. He takes it out of the imagery and puts it into a little more concrete language for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. And he's talking about Israel. Talking about his brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews, who he passionately loves. So he's not ditzing them, he is, he is just talking about what the problem is. He says their minds were hardened. Verse 14. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Scriptures... The same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. 
So understand this. You will never understand fully what the Word of God is talking about. You won't get the Bible until you come to Christ. Until you're born again. Scripture will not make the kind of sense for you before being born again that it makes after being born again. There's a complete difference. When you come to Christ, the veil is removed. Remember what we said early on in the Song of Songs? What happens when the veil is removed in a wedding? The groom and the bride kiss. There is intimacy. There is closeness. And there's a picture here of that. He says, to this day, verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. He says the Lord is spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So if you've been born again, born of the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom, there is understanding, you are able to see these things completely differently. In other words, when you turn to Christ, He dawns on you. He dawns on you. You start speaking according to this Word. And you could say, Jesus reflects well on you. Now keep your finger there, go back to... Verse 10 again of Song of Songs. Who is this that grows like the dawn, number one? Number two, as beautiful as the full moon. Second description here. She grows like the dawn, but she's also as beautiful as the full moon. Well, what does the full moon do? It reflects. It reflects the light of the sun. The full moon doesn't have any power in and of itself. No glory there. It's a big mirror in the sky. And the sun shining in all of its glory shines across. The moon is full when the sun is fully hitting it. And the moon, the full moon, then reflects the light of the sun. And it's a beautiful picture here, again, of the church. Not only reflecting, but being transformed by the light of His glory. She's as beautiful as the full moon. Look at verse 18 back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Now now hold on right there. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The word beholding there in the Greek is katoprizomai. Katoprizomai means to make, to reflect. The word beholding is literally reflecting in verse 18. We all with unveiled face are reflecting. As in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Like the beauty of the full moon. We begin to reflect the Lord as we gaze upon the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, skip down to chapter 4, verse 3. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see, listen, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Which is why, my friends, a beautiful church isn't because of us. It's because of the glory of God reflected on us and out of us and off of us. Best thing a church can possibly do the best thing you can possibly do as an individual in the church body is keep looking directly at the light of Jesus. 
Because the more you look at the light, the more the light reflects off of you. And it's not you that you're preaching. It's Jesus Christ. It is not the Bridge Christian Fellowship that we preach in this region. It is Jesus Christ. If you bring someone to Jesus because you're in a relationship with them and they find another church somewhere and they're being fed and they're loving Jesus in that place, praise the Lord. Encourage that. Because it's not about growing a single fellowship. It's about Jesus. And our job as a church is just to keep our eyes on Him. Just keep looking. Keep gazing. Let the full light of the Son, Jesus Christ, reflect off of us. We are just beautiful like a full moon. Reflecting Him. We're made to reflect the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the very image of God. But wait, there's more. Back in the Song of Songs, she's not only growing like the dawn, beautiful as the full moon, she's also, he says, as pure as the sun. Pure as the sun. Again, not only reflecting, but being transformed by the light of His glory. So something goes on spiritually that the moon doesn't experience. The moon does not take in the energy of the sun. It never will. The moon will always be cold. But you, as you reflect, and this is amazing, as you reflect the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, you are being transformed. It's as though His Spirit, as He comes into you, begins to change you to where you're no longer just like the full moon, but now you're beginning to be purified like the sun. You're becoming brighter in your own life. Paul says this back in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It's fantastic. And a little hard to buy. (laughs) Wait a minute. Because I, I ain't pure. I'm not pure. So suddenly... Does that mean that the picture breaks down? I I might be growing like the dawn to some extent. And and sure, I can reflect the glory like the full moon, but as, as pure as the sun, I'm not pure. No, you're not. Neither am I. But we are being made pure. We are being purified in this life. And what's remarkable to me is even though we are not pure and we are simply in the purification process, God looks through Jesus at you, through Jesus at me, and sees us as pure right now. Even though we're not. He says, but you are. And I say, but I'm not. And he says, well, I look right through Jesus and all I see is purity. So again, my job is I'm standing right on the other side of Jesus, looking at Jesus. And He is my purification. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Why is Jesus so concerned with my sanctification? I mean, it's really nice and I'm glad He is. But what's in it for him? We've got to go back to those two parallel passages we've heard a lot in the past few weeks. Ephesians 5.25 Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word that He might, listen, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory. What does Jesus get out of this? A beautiful church. What does Jesus want from us? A beautiful church. He's looking for a bride, gang. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. And by the time we get to Revelation 19, that parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 5, 
He says, The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Purified to be the bride that Jesus longs for. And that's the ultimate effect of Jesus on the church. Growing like the dawn. Beautiful as the full moon. Pure as the sun. You see how this is more than just a poetic description of a single individual? There is something powerful. You can go back to the Song of Songs now. Something powerful that's happening here as, as she's being changed. She's being altered. Growing into this remarkable, beautiful thing. Growing like the dawn. Beautiful as the full moon. Pure as the sun. And Paul said in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. He's working the program, gang. He's doing it. He is pouring out glory from glory to glory and He's changing and altering and purifying the church so that He might present to Himself a beautiful church. But there's one more interesting description of this beauty. As awesome as an army with banners, and I can honestly say I have never described my wife that way. You just, honey, you remind me of Nam. What? Yeah, you, you know, you remind me of the bridge on the River Kwai. You know, when they all come charging in, that, that's you, honey. Where is this coming from? I mean, that's just weird. What kind of wife looks like an army ready to attack? Guys, don't answer that. No. In Revelation 19... After the marriage of the Lamb to the Bride, who is clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, something else happens. Revelation 19, verse 11, one of my favorite passages. You know, you've probably heard me read it many times. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. Not the milky white eyes that the bride saw earlier in the song. Not the eyes of gentleness and compassion and Holy Spirit peace. But these are eyes of fire as He comes to judge. And on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written on Himself which no one knows except Himself. It's just cool. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and His name is called the Word of God. And who is that? It's Jesus. The Word who in the beginning was with God and the Word who was God. He was with God. He was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 tells us. Same Jesus. And the armies, verse 14, which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Who is this who is awesome as an army with banners? It's the church. It is the church. We were described back in the Song of Songs for what would happen in Revelation 19. This is a prophetic word in the Song of Songs. I'm absolutely convinced of it that we see played out in Revelation 19.14. 
He looks at his wife, his, his bride, his beloved, his Shulamith, and he says, or she, the, the chorus says, who is this? As awesome as an army with banners. No woman ever looks like that. She may be a little angry, but she's not going to look like that. But the church will. The church looks this way. There she is. Think this through with me for a minute. She's clothed in fine linen, which we're told the bride is clothed that way in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. Clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. And she's mounted up on white horses. And this great army is following Jesus at His second coming. And this is His beloved. This is the church or the saints. The church or the saints. Well, some say, well, I, I always just kind of assumed that was angels. No. And I'll tell you why. The saints. According to Catholicism, and many of you are, are versed in that, have perhaps a, a background in that, saints, according to Catholic theology, are a select group who have been venerated, beatified, and canonized. you got to go through a long process. First of all, you have to be dead for about 60 years before you can be considered even for the process. And then they begin the process of looking at the life, looking for miracles, looking for something supernatural and beyond in this particular life over all the other lives of believers. And right now there are roughly 3,000 Catholic saints in all of Catholicism. 3,000 people who have been sainted by the Pope. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says a man saints anybody. What I do see in Scripture, and Scripture is absolutely clear about this, is there are not 3,000 saints. There are multiplied, multiplied millions of saints. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, blood-bought by Jesus, walking in faith in Jesus, you're a saint. You are one of the saints. I love that. I love being called a saint. I don't always agree with the terminology in my life. I don't always feel worthy to be marching in with the saints when the saints go marching in. But the saints are all those who belong to Christ, all those who are with Him and will be with Him, note this, in heaven on that day. The saints, the church, will be there. will have already arrived there, I'll explain in a minute, already there. And as Jesus begins to come back to earth, we're given this one little picture, this snapshot of the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, interesting, looks exactly like the bride of a few verses before, now following Him on white horses. It is the saints. The Greek word for it is hagios. Saints or holy ones. The Hebrew equivalent is kadosh. And those two words are not ever applied to angels. There are other words that talk about angels. One we'll see in a minute. I know I keep saying that because there's still some things to come. But 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12 says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as also we do for you. So that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Saints, Hagios, it's the followers of Jesus. It is not angels. The Lord Jesus comes with all His saints, Paul says. He also says, well, Jude writes in Jude 14 15 about the earliest prophecy ever given. It was about these men that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. The word is hagias, saints. 
Enoch, seven generations out from Adam, got a vision of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in that vision, he looked and he saw Jesus and many thousands of, who are these? I don't know what to call them. They're not angels. Who are they? We'll just call them holy ones. Kadosh, Hagias, saints. Zechariah. Chapter 14, verse 5 tells us, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. Kadosh. Saints. We come with Him when He comes back. That's amazing. I mean, talk about an awesome ride. Are you ready to mount up and ride with Jesus? Because that is promised for you. That is something that down the line is going to happen. When Jesus comes back, when He sets foot on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah tells us, we're coming with Him. Why? Why are we coming back? If we've already been there, and of course you have to be there to come back here, right? So I'm already there. Why am I coming back down? To rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 1 talks about it. Revelation chapter 5 talks about it. Revelation chapter 20 talks about it. Again and again, we're told that we will rule and reign with Jesus in His holy government for a thousand years. The saints, the holy ones, Hagias. And so we see the church there in the Song of Songs described as growing like the dawn, and we should be. Described as beautiful as the full moon, reflecting, and that's our role. Described as pure as the sun from glory to glory, and described as awesome as an army with banners. Coming back with Jesus when He returns, a beautiful church. And that's just one verse in the song. i still got a couple to go. It's remarkable to me to see these things. But wait, wait, something happens before we can come back with Him. As I said, before we come back with Him, we need to be received to Him, right? We need to be where He is. And as Paul said back there, and I just noticed this in... Uh, how far back did I go there? There, there it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He said that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God. Well, where's God? Heaven. We're before Him. Something happens to get us there to where we are before God in heaven with Jesus before we turn around and come back with Him to rule and reign on this earth. What happens? Watch this. Verse 11 in the song. The bride, the wife, Shulamit is singing, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. Interesting. Now now think about this. Remember our study last Sunday in chapter 5. She had a nightmare of separation. Remember she was dreaming and, and she ran scared through the streets and she's wounded and she's struck as she's on her way and she finally finds the daughters of Jerusalem. And the daughters of Jerusalem ask her, what kind of beloved is your beloved? She starts thinking about him. And and they called her, oh, most beautiful among women. And she recognizes that. And then they asked her, where is your beloved gone? And it clicked. Suddenly she knew. In an instant she knew where he was in the garden. In the garden, she says, he's in the garden. Song of Songs chapter 4 describes that garden. It's her heart. And she realizes he never left her. He's been there all along. Well, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, most conservative scholars think she's now describing that a little bit more. 
the finding of her beloved in the garden as she describes this garden, but she's describing further what happened when she found him there. And something surprises her there. As she goes down to the garden, before I was aware, verse 12, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. What's going on? This has been called one of the most, if not the most difficult passages or verses in the entire Bible to translate. Translators through the years have really struggled with this one. And I've I've read through several different ones. The best conservative translation I've found is this. Verse 12. I became enraptured, for you placed me on the chariots of the people of the prince. I became enraptured. What we're talking about here is not just a beautiful church, but number two, a beautiful or a brilliant chariot. A brilliant chariot. Here's the picture. She finds her beloved. She goes down to the garden, the garden of the heart. She finds him there. And the moment she finds him, she doesn't even realize something happens so fast it catches her by surprise. He grabs hold of her, catches her up to his chariot, and places her above all the noble people and takes her on an amazing ride. And it reminds me of another chariot ride that was quite amazing. Second Kings, verse 11. Elijah and Elisha, they're going along and talking, and behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven, and Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. And in that chariot ride, Elijah was caught up, raptured, in a brilliant, fiery chariot ride. And what Shulamit sings about here in verse 12, it reminds us of that. That same chariot ride. Before I realized it, I was caught up. I was lifted up above the nobles in this chariot. I was placed in the chariot of the king. And the chariot of the king took Elijah away. And gang, the picture here is the chariot of the king taking you and me away in the rapture of the church. So we're going to ride in chariots? I didn't say that. It's a picture. We're not going to go up in a brilliant chariot necessarily. We are going up. In a moment, Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 15.52. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed forever. Paul said the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Listen again to what she says. Before I was aware, my soul sent me over the chariots of my noble people, or I became enraptured. You placed me there on the chariots of the people of the prince. You caught me up out of the crowd and took me away. And I think we're getting a picture here of the rapture of the church. Notice what the chorus sings in immediate response. Verse 13, Come back! Come back, O Shulamit! Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Some translations may say, Return! Where are you going? What's happening here? You're gone. Suddenly you're out of here. Come back, O bride. Come back, wife of the king. We want to see you some more. What will it be like on the ground when the church is raptured? What will the world be like? There are a lot of things that we don't really think about much. One of those is, 
will the church be missed? Hey, on this side of the rapture, the church takes a lot of guff. You know, the media and the world around today more and more increasingly putting the church down while lifting up pagan religions of all kinds. But I wonder, once the church is gone and the presence of the Holy Spirit with her, what will life be like? Will there be people on planet Earth going, come back. Come back, church. Come back, goodness. Come back, spirit. Nothing but evil and despair and destruction. A period of time on this, this earth of sheer terror. What will the daughters of Jerusalem say? That picture again that we've been looking at is Israel. Oh, come back. Come back. Will we be missed? I, I admit something to you here. This all sounded fantastic to me when I first heard it. It sounded like a fairy tale. Serious, I'm, I'm, I'm reading about, I'm hearing about the Rapture Church. I began reading the Left Behind series years ago when it first came out, and I'm reading the first one going, Walt Disney ought to really do something with this. You know? Because it, it's, it's beyond amazing. I didn't buy it. I'm reading Left Behind going, no way. I mean, I believe Jesus was going to come, but I pretty much just believe He was going to come and it was going to all be done and we'd just go to heaven and float on clouds for all eternity. I had no idea how specific the Word of God is as to what is coming, as to what is before us. But you know what did it for me? I began to see it in the teaching of Jesus. Not that the whole entire Word of God isn't His Word. It is. But there's something about the red letters, isn't there? (laughs) That if we can see it there. I even had someone a week ago say, well, show it to me in the teachings of Jesus. Okay. Matthew 24, verse 40. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And the word for taken there, some say, I know, yeah, but but he was just talking about Noah before that. You know, and all the evil people who were taken out. And then he says, one will be taken and one will be left. So the ones who are taken are those who are evil, right? Like in the flood. No. No. You're not reading it in Greek. Because the taken, that word reply, uh, applying to the people in Noah's day who were taken out in the flood, that word is aero in the Greek, and it means to cause to cease to exist. But the word taken, when we're told one will be taken and one will be left in the Greek, is paralambano, which means to take with. And it's clear in the language that he's talking about two different things. I first saw that and I went, really, Jesus? One's going to be here and one's going to be just taken up with you? Really? I got a little excited. I heard Jesus say in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So is there some truth to this, Jesus? He said in John 11.25, and I missed this my whole life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live Even if he dies. Even if he dies? And then Jesus clarifies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What? There are some people who are going to die in Christ, but they will be resurrected. There are others who will be alive when he comes, and they will be caught up, and they will never taste death. There is a small group of people in history who will never taste death. 
and I've already put in my application. (laughs) And when people say, how, if you could have any choice, how would you wish to die? And I'd say, I don't wish to die. (laughs) But then Jesus puts this, this fine point on the end of this. He says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I heard that and I finally went, yes, I do. I was recently asked at the ladies' Bible study, we went and and shared with them a couple weeks back, and and one of the ladies said, will we be able to watch the tribulation on earth as we are in heaven? When all hell is breaking loose down here, and we've been caught up and we're with Jesus, will, will we be able to watch that going on? And my answer is, why would you want to? I'm not sure if we realize how enamored we will be with our beloved Jesus when we see Him. That we will not want to take our eyes off of Him. Nothing will captivate us so much as the greater than Solomon, our King Jesus, our beloved. But read on, there's still more. They cry out, come back, come back, O Shulamith, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. And then he says, why should you gaze at the Shulamith as at the dance of the two companies. Huh? (laughs) What are you saying? Why are you gazing at the Shulamith? Literally, he says, as the dance of the Mahanaim. And you might make a note of that. Some of your Bibles may even just translate at the dance of the Mahanaim. M-A-H-A-N-A-I-M. Mahanaim. What is that? All right, keep your finger here. Go back to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Jacob was shaken in his boots. Jacob was between a rock and a hard place. He had just come from Laban, who is his father-in-law. He just worked his tail off for seven years for Rachel as a wife and woke up the next morning after the wedding and found out it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. So he had to work further to get now Rachel as his bride. So now he's got Rachel and Leah and he's beginning to make his way back to the promised land. But what he did was he snuck out on Laban. Laban was doing everything possible to keep this young, hard-working man around. You know, Jacob wasn't having any of it. So he sneaks out and he heads off and Laban takes off after him and is pursuing him. So he's freaked out. I've got Laban. I've got my father-in-law on my heels. Guys, you know what that's like? You're running. He's there. And so finally they, they make some peace at the end of chapter 31. And then he finds out before him Esau is coming. Now you need to understand it's been 20 years since Jacob has seen Esau. And the last time he saw him, he ripped off the birthright and skipped out of town. So he's assuming that his brother is flaming mad at him. In fact, what he hears is Esau's coming and with him a big army of people. (laughs) But God does something wonderful for Jacob. In chapter 32, verse 1, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Wow. You know, if you're ever being squeezed from two directions, what a wonderful thought there. Just to have some angels meet up and go, hey, it's cool, we got you, right on. I'm just going to stay here, you guys do the fighting. (laughs) That'll work for me. But it says, Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp, or God's encampment. And so he named that place Machanaim. Machanaim. 
It means double camp. Jacob is given a vision of a double encampment of angels. Angels on one side, angels on the other. He calls it Machanaim, the angels are here. (laughs) A double encampment of angels. Amazing. It's God saying to Jacob, I've got you covered. Heel catcher, (laughs) which is what Jacob means. I've got you covered, schemer. It's not because of you. It's because of me. I've got you covered. Now listen. In the Hebrew language, the word machanaim, because of this story, Genesis 32, became a specific reference to angels. A well-read Jewish person, a rabbi today, if you say, what's the machanaim? They would say, oh, that's angels. It's angels. And you may recall, on the night of Jesus' birth, the shepherds were in the hills of Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. The Machanaim, an encampment of angels, there in the sky at the birth of Jesus. Well, what are you saying with all this, Rick? Go back to the song. There is a beautiful imagery here that you just need to see. The chorus calls out, cries out from earth as it were, Come back, Shulamit! And the beloved says, Why are you asking for her to come back? She's already dancing in the company of angels. She's already there. She's already with the Machanaim. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? What two companies? The same two companies that Jacob saw. The companies of angels. Have you ever just thought, once the church has been caught up to be with Jesus, what kind of company do you think we're going to keep? Gang, we'll be with the rest of the church, the saints, from from old all the way up till now, but we will also be surrounded just in in an amazing, amazing display. And Revelation 5 tells us, describes it to us. Let me just read it to you. Verse 9, They sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and break its scrolls, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the song of the redeemed, and only the redeemed can sing that one. It's the church there in heaven. Verse 10, You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory and blessing and honor and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And people asked the question, Will we be able to see the tribulation at that time? This is astounding. This vision of John will not just be a vision to you, to me one day. We will be here. We will be caught up in this massive worship as at the dance of the Machanim. We will watch and listen to and be a part of the worship of angels. There's your company when you are caught up. But back in verse 13 of the song, what the Beloved does is He offers after we see this picture of a beautiful church and a brilliant chariot, number three, he offers a basic choice. 
a basic choice. Listen to it again. Why should you gaze at Shulamit, at the dance or as at the dance of the Machanim? Some people do. Some people gaze at the church. Some people stare down Shulamit, the bride, the beautiful church. Some say, I was baptized in a particular church. I did my catechism. I went to Sunday school there. I make occasional appearances, right? So I'm good to go. I'm part of this church. And when Jesus comes, I'll just say, I was a Baptist. I was Methodist, right? You were good with the method. I was Presbyterian. We had the chair set up Presbyterian style this morning just for you. <laughs> I was Catholic. I was this. I was that. And Jesus will say, yeah, I'm looking for something else. I was yours, Jesus. But people will, will say that and, and, and place all their faith and all their hope in the church, which is why we get so disappointed. Don't put your faith in the church. Jesus is making the church beautiful, but we are not beautiful in and of ourselves. Don't put your faith there. Others say, well, yeah, I don't like the church. I'm not into organized religion. Our kids were out for the bigger and better game night. The whole idea of the bigger and better, you trade up for things. You give a penny to get a dollar. You give a dollar you know, to get a can of juice. You get a can of juice, to get, and you try and come back with the biggest and best thing. One guy at a door said, well, I'd give you a book on how I don't like organized religion, but I don't think you'd want that. Hmm. It's like, dude, they're just having fun. Just because they said we're from the Bridge Christian Fellowship, well, I don't like organized religion. A lot of people say that kind of thing. Guess what? Both views miss the point. Both those who say the church is my salvation and those who say I don't like the church both miss the point that the church can neither save nor condemn anybody. We're not an institution, not an organization. We're an organism created by Jesus, made up of the saved and made beautiful by Jesus. Why should you gaze at the church? Why should you gaze at the Shulamith? As far as that goes, why should you gaze at the dance of the Mahanaim? People do. Especially in the Northwest. People look to angels. They look to channeled spirits. They check their horoscopes. Man, especially up here. People are. This is a very, very spiritual area in which we live. It's just not very Christian. <laughs> Lots of spirituality. But you know, the thing is, and it's really sad, people are into all kinds of spiritual, mystical entities because they're trying to get through life. They're thinking, if I can do this, if I can channel that, if I can get this read, then somehow I can get through life. The Hebrew writer says, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Did you hear that? God the Father says this of Jesus the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Amen. See the difference? The basic choice comes down to who you're going to look to. The basic choice. Jesus makes His church beautiful, but she ain't your Savior. So don't look to her to save. Look to Him. And secondly, He created angels as worshipers and ministers who we get to sing with in heaven, but they have no means in and of themselves of getting you there. No spirit 
has the power to get you from here to there except for the Holy Spirit of the living God. He alone can get you there. And yet people are caught up with spirits and entities and spirituality and things down here trying to make life better and it just doesn't work. And it certainly will not get you home. Only Christ. Only Jesus, which is why I believe the bridegroom sings it right there. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? You're looking in the wrong place, chorus. You're not looking to the right direction. Only the one whose throne is forever and ever. You've got to be born again. You've got to walk and live and breathe in an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Because guess what? Here on earth, nothing lasts. The Grecian urn is shattered. The beauty that is created and drawn and painted and written into songs all fades away. You've got to be born again. Because Jesus is truth and beauty. Jesus is truth and beauty, beauty and truth, yesterday, today, and forever. And that is all you need to know. And Father, that is all we want to know. May we hear loud and clear that the beauty and wonder and splendor of this song is not the bride, it is the groom. That all the beauty that comes to the bride, your church, Jesus, is that which is given by you. From glory to glory, what is poured out by you. And may we, Lord, with unveiled faces reflect that glory. May we, like the sun in its strength, receive of your glory and be transformed by your glory, Lord. And may we be present as an army with banners in the day that you come. In Jesus' name, Amen.